So there's this um, entire TV channel. Some of you, I'm sure, know this. Many of you probably know it. That's this channel is completely um, dedicated to game shows. Uh, in fact, I think there's two of them. It's like there's the Game Show Network. And there's another one. Um, it's pretty much like I think it's like 24/7. It's just game shows, and they're all like old. They're like reruns from you know over the years. Um, I'm not really a so much of a game show guy at all. But a couple of months ago, uh, actually, I think it was back when I when I had COVID, I was sort of stuck in the house for a couple of weeks. So um, I, I was clicking around and I saw a part of one of these these game shows and had no intention of watching it um, or staying with it um, until I heard in this couple of seconds of like looking at it, I, I saw this what I thought was sort of an incredible thing uh, in the course of this episode. The show was called, um, and it was old, it was like the 1950s, it's black and white. Um, the show was called I've Got a Secret, and uh, the premise of the show is this, the guest comes on, and he's got, or she has this secret, or this interesting fact about their life. And um, what they do is they display whatever the fact or the secret is, they, they show it on the screen. So if you're watching at home, you know what it is. But then this panel of people, they don't know what it is. So their job, they're each given like a minute of questioning, and they just, they're, they're allowed to ask questions of this person. And they're really kind of like yes, no answers. And if their minute is up, they go to the next, I think there's like three or four panelists. So, like, the, the thing is, can, can they find out who, what the, the secret is in this short period of time? Uh, again, the show just looked so old and not interesting. Like, there was no way I was going to watch it until I saw this fact, the secret of this particular person came up on the screen. Uh, and this is what it was. This guy, he was the last witness to President Lincoln's assassination. So this guy was like alive when Lincoln was assassinated. Now, the show was in the 1950s, so a long time ago, but I was like, there's no way that could be possible. Like, and I wasn't really sure when, the, like, I didn't know when Lincoln, the actual date of his assassination, but I was thinking like, how could this, how could somebody still be alive from an event like that? Now, the guy looked like he was 150 years old. I mean, he, he looked real old. Um, but what it came down to was this. He, uh, Lincoln was assassinated in 1865. This show, when it was happening, was 1955. And he was 96 years old. So when Lincoln was assassinated, he was six. And he was at the Ford's Theater that night. So he really was there. And he really did remember parts of it. Um, they figured out pretty quickly, the panelists, that fact. So sort of like the game was over. And he had like two minutes or so where he got to, he was just asked, it was sort of like now like an interview with this old guy. And it was like riveting because like he was talking about this unbelievably historical night. And he was, a, he was directly there. Uh, he talked about... You know, when, when John Wilkes Booth shot Lincoln, you know, they were up in the balcony, and some of you probably know this, Booth then jumped up on the ledge and jumped over the balcony, and he landed on the stage. 
I think he broke his leg or broke something, but he landed on a stage. That's what this old guy, when he was six, remembered. Like, you know, the, the gun, they didn't even know what happened. They didn't know that there was a shooting. All this little six-year-old saw was this man landing on the stage, and he thought he fell. He was like, oh, my God, like this poor guy fell off the balcony. That's what he, he remembered kind of feeling, feeling bad for him. Um, and then he went on to talk a little bit more about just the, the, the response and the panic and the screams. and um, It was just... It was just kind of unbelievable that we could be listening to somebody who was there then. Um, I don't know. I just it, it, it sort of to me it's like the uh, the power of being a witness. Like when you witness to something, like some some event. Like I'd much rather hear what that guy said because he was there then some historian writing about what happened a hundred and whatever years later. Um, Witnesses really matter. Like witnesses, a good witness, is really important. Um, we get in some of this witness stuff in this first reading from the Acts of the Apostles. Acts of the Apostles is like a, a, a profile of the church right after Jesus has risen from the dead. It's the beginning of the church. And they have this meeting. Peter has this meeting. It's very practical. It's like a business meeting. Judas is dead. Judas betrayed Jesus, felt so horrible about it, he killed himself. You know, it's like double tragedy. First was ratting out Jesus, and then to think, as bad as that was, I, I could never be forgiven. Like, how awful is that? Like, of course you can be forgiven. We can always be forgiven. Like, there's nothing that's unforgivable. But I guess Judas didn't think so. So he takes his own life. So the meeting is like, okay, we gotta replace we got to replace Judas. There were, there were 12, now there's 11, we want to bring it back to 12. So they talk about the requirements for the job, which is really what happens in this first reading. And the requirement was kind of simple. They wanted somebody who was there. They wanted somebody who knew Jesus, who witnessed him. And they picked this guy, Matthias. He wasn't one of the original 12, but I guess he must have hung out with them. Because the, the, the description is, yeah, we want somebody who was there from the start. When Jesus was baptized in the Jordan, we want somebody who watched that and saw that. All the way up to his death. We want a witness. In order to witness. In order to tell people how necessary and real Christ is, we want somebody who will be able to say, kind of like the guy in the game show, I was there. This is, this is what happened. This is what it was like. Well, this is what he was like in the case of Jesus. But now there's like a practical thing. Like at a certain point, that's going to run out, right? Like the apostles are going to die. When time passes, there will no longer be anybody who was alive during the time of Jesus. All the apostles died. Most of them were martyred. John was the last one. He died sort of of old age. He was exiled on this island. So now there's nobody left who was there. There's nobody left who was a direct witness. You, know, you think like you hear these stories about World War II vets, how few there are left. You know, 
Memorial Day or anniversary of D-Day, like these special days, you know, these, these old veterans will be interviewed and there's just so few of them left. They say this for, for people who were at D-Day, there's about 2,500 left. Now think about it, these guys are all in their 90s and there's only 2,500 left, like another few years and there'll be nobody left who, who was at D-Day. So we'll only be able to know about it from a history book. And that's got its place, but it's not witness powerful. So that's what you, that's what you got. The question with, with the apostles is like, oh, with the church is like, so what's gonna happen? So they come up with the new, they come up with the job description. And we hear it in the gospel. Jesus is praying. First of all, on a very practical note, like if we're lucky enough to eavesdrop on Jesus praying, we ought to eavesdrop. Like, who was the best prayer of all time? Like, let's listen to what was important to him. Let's listen to what he had to say. And that's what the gospel I just read. And he's praying for those who will follow him. He's praying for these witnesses, the people who will pick up after he's gone. You know, this is Jesus' final night. It's the Last Supper. Think about it, like if you knew this was your last couple of hours on earth, you'd probably think of the important stuff. The people you love the most, you'd probably tell them the things you want them to remember. You're not gonna talk about nonsense, unimportant stuff, you're gonna talk about the stuff that matters. And this is what Jesus says, it's very simple. It's part of his prayer, but this is like the job description. It says, lifting up his eyes to heaven, Jesus prayed, and then he says this, God, make them, make them one. Keep them together, keep them unified. Because when we get divided, we're weak. We become weak when we're divided. But if we're on the same page on the stuff that matters, man, I think about parents of teenagers, like the big stuff, the important things. It's like, man, mom and dad have to be on the same page. Because guys, no offense at this, but like you guys are masters at like conquering and dividing. It's like if you want something and you know there's no way dad's gonna let you do it, you're not going to dad, you're going to mom. Because she's gonna be a little weaker. She's gonna, you know, whatever, or the opposite. Division, you divide them, you got a better chance of getting what you want. If they're on the same page, it's like, you know you're not getting it from dad. And if you equally know you're not getting it from mom, you're not getting it. Like you're not even gonna try. And that Jesus is thinking the same thing, like, I can't have them divided. They gotta be on the same page with the important stuff. And then he says this, um, give them courage. Because they're gonna have to speak my truth. And people are gonna flip out when they hear my truth. They're not gonna buy it, they're not gonna want it. They're gonna reject it. Because I'm gonna call them out on, on reality ways in which they're not living their life, they're gonna hear it, good and bad. The good they're gonna love, but the bad, they're not gonna wanna hear, and they'll try and shut them up. And his prayer is, don't help make them brave so they don't panic and they don't run. And the last thing he says is, all of that, when they speak the truth, do it with a smile, like be joyful. Be excited and be happy about this Jesus, this faith this way of living, living out our lives. So be one, be true, and be kind. I mean, hey, if that was a, if you put out a help wanted ad for uh, 
disciples. That's what it's going to be. It's going to be, I need, I need happy people, I need brave people, and I need people who are together. You know, there was this play, Broadway play, back in, I guess, the 1980s. And it was pretty big at the time. It won, like, Tony Awards. It was called Mass Appeal. And it was about, it was like a two characters. There was only two people in the play. One guy's a priest, and one guy's a deacon who's going to become a priest. He's, like, studying to be a priest. And the deacon is assigned to the priest's parish, kind of like a on-the-job training thing. And they couldn't be more opposite. The priest is this middle-aged guy, really, really nice guy. Everybody loves him. Very charming, very witty. He's always got a joke. Uh, always kissing babies and shaking hands. Um, he's a very entertaining preacher, but he never challenges people. His preaching never makes people uncomfortable. He's just always kind of trying to keep people happy. He's always checking the collection. It's like if, if the people are happy, the collection's going to be up, so keep the people happy. Don't rock the, don't rock the boat. That's this guy. And this young guy, this deacon, is kind of the opposite. He's this uh, very idealistic, kind of take-no-prisoners kind of guy. He's um, also kind of angry. So he comes in and he, has his first, he gives his first homily, and he blows the place up. He's insulting all these people and saying, you got money and you're, you're not giving anything to the poor and all you care about is yourself. And he's just, he's obnoxious. He says some true things, things that they never hear from the other guy, but he just doesn't say it right. People just get blinded by the anger of it all. So it doesn't work. Anyway, the story is about these two guys, like how different they are. And it's almost like this, like there's good things about each of them and there's not so good things about each of them. And if you could take the good and combine them and put them in one person, you'd have a great disciple. Somebody who is true and is idealistic and willing to speak the truth, but also kind and present to the people and compassionate. Like, you need both. You can't just be somebody who says, everything's okay, do whatever you want. And you can't be some nut who's just screaming all the time, telling people they're all going to hell. Like, there's got to be like this, I think, the balance between the two. And I think it's what Jesus describes in this prayer. It's the job description. It's the best of those two guys. And you know what? I think you, we see it in the course of life. Like, you meet people and you're like, there's just something about them that's like, they stand out, they're different. My sister is a, she teaches, she's a second grade school teacher. She teaches at a Catholic, uh, Martin de Porres in uh, Uniondale. And she asked me a couple of weeks ago, she said, hey, would you, uh, so anyway, her kids made first communion yesterday, her second graders. She said, could you, can I come over and talk to the, her class one day? And I said, yeah, sure. And then she said, you know what? She was here for mass in the grotto and she said, maybe we'll do like a little field trip. And we did. So they came by last week, they got a bus and these 30 little munchkins came out and they came and they had lunch in the uh, grotto. We came in here, I spoke to them for a little bit and then they went to the park in town. Uh, it was the whole, like an hour, two hours, the whole thing. But I was talking to these second graders, I was kind of watching them as I'm talking to them and they just, First of all, they were like super cute. But beyond that, it was like, they were like so joyful. And they were so open to like hearing 
what I had to say or anybody you know, about, about Jesus. We were looking at the stained glass windows and explaining, and they were asking these questions. We went down to where Padre Pio statue is, and I told them about that, the stigmata. They're like, they couldn't believe what that was. And you know, Padre Pio's glove, one of his gloves is there, and I showed them that. They were like spellbound. They were so open to hearing about God. And I was like, man, I, I wish I was like them. Like that, and I'm not saying I want to be a second grader, but like to have some of that energy and joy. You know, they were so nice to each other. They're like, they're still in second grade. They haven't become brats yet, you know. They're not mean. I mean, you guys in eighth grade, you guys kind of become brats, don't you? Like at a certain point? I'm kidding, it's kind of a joke. I'm not totally kidding though. Like, it's actually kind of true. Like, think about it. You get older in school, kids become idiots and they're, they're cruel and they're not nice to each other. Not you six, but many, many like you. And it's, the second grade hasn't happened. It's like, man, I want, like, they're little, they're little witnesses of how we should be. I did a uh, funeral the other day at uh, St. Mary's, and it was for a guy who died very suddenly, in his early 60s. Big, total church was full. And I met with um, his wife before the funeral, I mean, at the wake. And she said to me they, they got married when they were 27. And that year, her, like the wife's sister, died suddenly. And she had three kids, like seven, nine, and 13 or something, three girls. And the, their father just checked out. The father just like didn't, uh, didn't want them. So they adopted them. She was like, we were 27. We were like married like a year. And then in a moment, in a decision, we had three girls. Like it was just like, I was almost speechless hearing that. Like that kind of courage, that kind of faith. You should have seen these three women, adult women, these sisters, these daughters, like weeping throughout this mass, how much they love this guy. Just like witnesses. They're people who like, if they, if they applied for the job, they got it. Because they're doing what he asked, hoped for in that prayer. And then we get you guys. And that's what today is about. Brian, Ella, Sophia, Orion, Gretchen, Tegan. Guys, what's, what's this day when you put on this crazy red gown? It's like, it's time to be a witness. Or time to continue being a witness. Courage and kindness. Like it is time to rescue underdogs and people who are vulnerable, people who are weak, to like seek them out and lift them up. It's time to be a good example or continue being a good example. And what, what the church says is easy said, not so easy done. So that's where the Holy Spirit comes to help, to be courageous, to have wisdom, to be understanding and compassionate, to even figure out, okay, who is the underdog in this, in this group? He or she looks like they're alone and they're struggling. Let me go seek that. Let me, in my own way, let me like, let me go to bat for that kid. 
Let me use these gifts that this Spirit has presented to us. And that's why you, you, we ask you guys to get pick names. Not just to pick a cool name, but to pick like a name of somebody of a great witness. Some saint who did it right. A famous one. And then you get the not so famous ones, like the guy that I buried the other day who did it right along with his wife. It's about doing it right. Being witnesses, great witnesses. Are we?